Hello, Namaste. I'm Ruchira Gupta, your host for the podcast A Free Voice. I'm an Emmy-winning journalist who went on to start Apnea, an NGO which works against sex trafficking. I have dedicated my life to amplifying voices of the most marginalized people in the world. I'm also the debut author of scholastic book I Kick and I Fly. In this podcast, I will talk to survivors, activists, and storytellers who use their voice to make a difference in the lives of young people. How does an idea turn into action? How do you change a tragedy into recognizing your own powers? Together, we will examine and reimagine the world we want. There was a sudden peace that filled the atmosphere. Though the room felt physically hot and clammy, the windows fogged and the ground was cold. The roaring whisper of the cheap air conditioning unit was at last the only sound that roared. The little lamp on the nightstand flickered dimly, and the sun tried to peek through the foggy windows, but it was dark. The eyes of the audience glanced around the room in an overwhelming state of shock, but amongst them was peace, a sudden calmness. Thank you, the Destin whimpered with a smile on her face. Her flesh was weak, but she felt an amazing rush of strength within her spirit. Thank you. That was Kathy Givens, reading from her book, Destined. Kathy is joining us from Texas on the podcast, A Free Voice, where she runs 12-11 partners which support survivors of trafficking to exit systems of oppression. Welcome, Kathy. It's truly an honor to have you on my podcast, A Free Voice. My first question to you is, how did you end up writing Destined? First, thank you for so much for having me. I destined the unspoken revealed was my personal journal. And I tell people that all the time it was my way of expressing what happened to me because I didn't believe that anyone would believe me. I didn't believe that um, it was that anyone would be able to identify with some of the things that I had gone through. And I didn't know how to explain what I had gone through um, in words through speaking, right? It was a very shameful time of my life. I felt very guilty, very shameful. But the one thing that I felt that I could trust was my pen and my paper. And so I just released all of my trauma basically on paper and it started as a journal and then it became a book. And a stage play. And a stage play, yes. <laughs> And it's so interesting, Kathy, that uh, you were actually able to keep a journal during the time when you were being exploited and controlled by people and, um, you know, in the name of love, being pimped into prostitution so many times again and again. How did you even have the tenacity to keep a journal? I know that control is such a big thing by pimps and prostitution. They don't let you keep paper and pen. They don't give you free time. They dominate every minute of your life. And also, you know, what happens is there's trauma and the mind cannot hold a coherent narrative together. So did you keep the journal on paper napkins in your head? How did you even keep that journal? In my head, I was telling stories in my head, I was keeping track of every event that happened in my head because it was very important for me because I was trying to process what was happening 
And I just didn't know if I was going to survive, you know, from moment to moment. I just didn't know if I was ever going to survive. So I wanted to make sure that I was really capturing those memories in my head just in case, you know, I was going get, to get a chance to um, tell them. But the real writing and the recording of my journal on paper came after I exited and after I left, was able to leave him. I like the word just in case. And that is where the impulse for so much of our resistance comes from. Um, how did you even know there was a just in case? I didn't, but I had to hope. And I tell people all the time, you know, one of the scariest things for me being out there and being caught up in a life of trafficking was losing hope. To me, that was scarier than the violence that I faced. It was scarier than, you know, all of the exploitation. It was losing hope. If I lost hope while I was out there, I knew that I would not survive. I knew that I would die the moment that I lost hope. And so for me, it was very important just to hold on to some to have some kind of faith, right? To just to, to make it from moment to moment. But Kathy, where does that hope come from? You know, it's, it's unfathomable in some ways. It is very unfathomable. I think what helped me is my upbringing. And I grew up in the church with my grandmother. And um, as a child, I was very, I was around, you know, uh, praying people and people of faith. And even though I never really believed, um, you know, as I was coming up and I was, a, as, as I, as I was a child, it certainly was something for me foundational that it was the last thing for me to, to look back to. Right. And so in the middle of my crisis, in the middle of my trafficking situation, I could hear my grandmother's voice so clearly telling me that things were going to be okay and that I just needed to keep having faith and I needed to hope and I needed to trust. And because she was a, you know, um, a faith filled woman and I came from that background, I had a connection, right? Like I had something to look back to, which I know many people don't. True, very true. I've often found religion to be also a force of patriarchy and it just fills you with, uh, you know, fear and guilt and shame. And sometimes that can also lead to you being further exploited by the pimp or anybody, right? Uh, because you feel that you're devalued as a human being and, you know, God will not accept you. So church can also be a force for exploitation or any religion. It's all very similar. Yes. So, you know, how how did you even overcome uh, that fame, uh, that shame, fear and guilt? You know, I started, it took a long time, even after my exit. Shame, fear and guilt was something that I carried with me. Even after my trafficker, I was away from my trafficker and he left. For me, it was opening up to an individual. I can remember very clearly there was an individual, a young lady that was telling me about her experience with her then said boyfriend. And, you know, she was just explaining some things that she was going through and it really triggered something in me. It was like an aha moment. Like I, this is very similar to what I had gone through. And so in that moment, I had a moment of transparency and I opened up to her and I was like, let me tell you what happened to me. And I told her and it was literally like the next day or two that she came back and she's like, I 
I think you just saved me. Like, I think you just saved my life. I think that, you know, I broke up with him. I broke it off. And she's like, I, she started crying and she was just like, thank you so much for sharing that because I thought I was alone. I thought that I was by myself. And so before her situation got too dark, she was able to get out and escape by me simply sharing my experience. It was then that I felt empowered and I felt really just called, like I felt a calling to help individuals um, that had experienced this type of trauma and exploitation. So what I hear is that the faith in sisterhood, your grandmother was a sister, this young lady is a sister, and then you became a sister to so many. So there's also some magical power, which is in the faith we have in each other when we share our truth. If we honor our sister with the truth, then something changes, something happens. And I've noticed this in my own life, uh, that I was a very um, scared sort of a person, an introvert who always used to sit in a corner and write books and just be an onlooker. And when I felt rage, then I did not want to speak about it. I would like to write about it to myself. But then the moment I did speak about being attacked as a journalist once uh, to a group of people and I've made new friends and allies or when I made a documentary on sex trafficking and showed it to a room full of people, I had to answer their questions. Mm. And then they became friends and I made more and more friends as I went along. I found that I thought I was speaking on behalf of those victims of sex trafficking, Mm. but actually I found my own free voice in the process. Oh, that's so beautiful. So that's the power of sisterhood. Like you feel you're rescuing somebody else, but you're being rescued. And that reminds me of something that I have. I know that you don't like the word rescue in the work you do when you take survivors on the journey out of human trafficking. Why don't you like the word rescue? Rescue, in my personal opinion, feels like um, it's a savior. It's a word that derives from a savior mentality. And so it for me, like when I think of firemen and first responders kicking in doors and, you know, snatching babies out of fires and rescuing people and rescuing animals, that's rescue. Like I use rescue, right, because they had a duty to go and save that individual. They're trained to go save that individual. That individual didn't could not save themselves from that fire or that incident, right? But even in that, there is some choice. (laughs) There is some agency on the individual that has experienced that trauma to say, I am going to trust myself to take your hand. I am going to trust the help that you are offering me. I am going to trust that you do have my, my best interest at heart. And it takes, it's a partnership, you know, the moment that the individual accepts the invitation for help and support, it becomes a partnership, not necessarily a rescue. So we can't really take the credit for an individual's journey. Obviously, we're so grateful, right? We're so grateful that people extend the support and extend the help, especially to individuals that have experienced trafficking, but it's ultimately on that individual to trust the help and to take the hand of the helper and the hand of the helper, um, you know, and the one that's needing the partnership, you know, that they can walk together. But that's the only reason. And and then it's a it's an uneven power dynamic. Um, you know, when we think of 
rescue and the rescuer, right? The one rescuing and the rescue, the one being rescued. It's just an uneven power dynamic. And so we just have to realize that we're all community, we're all people, and we all need help at some point. So it's almost like a moral obligation to walk alongside each other. I like that walk alongside each other. And you have walked alongside many, many, many people who were victims of sex trafficking and who became survivors and then victors. Now, I don't even know if you like the word victims, but I want to ask you, do you? You know, I I am okay with the word victim in a lot of settings. So when we talk about the legal system and justice and all those things, I get it, you know, especially for prosecution. If there's someone committing a crime, that means there has to be a victim. So in that lens, I I totally understand it. And I also am respectful for people that of people that use it. There are individuals that even exit the life of trafficking that still say, Yeah, I was a victim. My Preference, though, is not the word victim. It's not the first thing that I would go to, especially when we're talking about people that have overcome trafficking. So people that have experienced it but have gotten out of it and it's no longer a part of their story, they're no longer victims, even if they're not even overcome their trauma yet, right? They're no longer victims. And I prefer the word overcomer and, you know, um, survivor just because it, it's, it's empowering, right? And it's, it's That's true. Yeah. But also, you know, uh, there's so much trauma um, in the life of a person who is trafficked, you know, because there's repeated exploitation, there's repeated body penetration, which has both physical and mental health consequences. Then there's the degradation, shame, humiliation, all the mental stuff which also accompanies this. Um, can anyone ever actually get over the trauma? Restoration is a lifelong process, and that is what I tell everyone. This is a lifelong process. Um, you know, oftentimes when an individual leaves their trafficker, that's when the true fight begins, right? Because now you have to process, oh my gosh, what just happened to me? And like you said, there's deep, deep trauma there. I have exited the life. I have been free for 20 years now. I still have days, right? There are new things that come up in my mind, things that I didn't, I had not remembered for 20, for the past 20 years, because I believe that my brain, you know, protects us from, from some things. And so, there are things that come up just out of the blue or I'll go into a new, you know, I'll drive past a store or go into a city or I'll smell someone that walks beside me and it, it brings up those things. So it's a lifelong process. So every day is a day of overcoming. It's not something that just goes away just because the trafficker goes away. So how do you deal with the trauma? You know, for me personally, and every individual story is going to be different and every experience is going to be different. But for me personally, my helping others and connecting with others. And like you said, that sisterhood and uplifting people and partnering with people and walking alongside people. That's for me, too. <laughs> like, it's very similar to your story. Uh, I am on a continued journey of healing. And I believe that if the more people that I can help and support and, you know, bring awareness to it is almost like I'm getting filled up, right? And so Lovely. that's a part of my healing journey. It's very important to my healing journey. 
Um, but, you know, also, uh, do you find that, uh, you know, listening to stories of trauma again and again, because in the work you do with 12, 11 um, partners, you have to listen to other people's trauma. And, um, you know, that can be equally traumatic if you hear stories of trauma again and again and again. So how did you fling yourself into that? Yes, it was a decision that I made to walk with individuals that have that are on their path to overcoming. So for instance, for 1211, we don't focus um, or our main focus is not on individuals that are in current crisis, meaning they're not in a trafficking situation. They're not you know, fresh out of a trafficking situation per se, not, not most of them anyways. Um, we do encounter a lot of that, but most of the individuals that we partner with have already exited, have already, you know, went to programs, treatment, and now they're being reintroduced back into community. And that's where 1211 lies. And so it was a very strategic, re, you know, we were very strategic about the partnership and what the partnership was going to look like. I believe that if I was on the front end, like emergency crisis, you know, even having a shelter or a house, I believe that would be too close to my trauma, me personally. And I don't think that I could do that successfully. But I can talk about the overcoming side. I can talk about, you know, careers and economic empowerment and how are we going to use our experiences to empower others? That's a safe place for me. Um, and so that's how I'm able to to engage with people. Now, when I do get those crisis calls, I have a lot of self-care and coping skills that I've practiced over the years to really, um, you know, help and sustain my mental health. So do you feel that um, there are some lessons you can share with the listeners of A Free Voice about what you've learned dealing with some of these very, very dark situations for the most marginalized and vulnerable people. Yes, it is so important that we listen to people that have experienced this type of trauma or just any type of trauma. The thing that I have, have come to learn is that our trauma is compounded, right? So we experience polyvictimization in the worst way. And so sometimes when an individual experiences trafficking, we look at just the trafficking experience, but we've got to allow people to give voice to their holistic experience, right? What family do they come from, their environment? What, you know, were the drivers? What, what, what happened? Who are they as a person? And so when we engage with individuals that have experienced trafficking, we've got to engage with the person and we've got to listen and we've got to listen to whatever it is that they want to talk about, even if it's not their trafficking experience. We've got to listen to their likes, their dislikes. Who are they as a person? That gave me so much confidence to keep going. I remember when I first started this journey, I felt very robotic as though, you know, trafficking hasn't been a lot. Anti-trafficking really has not been around for that long, right? This is a new thing. So when I first started sharing there was a lot of tokenism involved as far as like, well, just share your deepest, darkest, you know, parts of your story. And I said, OK, because I was defining my voice. And so I thought that that was the way to help. I thought that exposing myself and opening myself up to re-traumatizing or re-victimization mentally and spiritually and emotionally, I thought that that was my the way that they wanted me to help. There were times that I told that I was told, you know, well, say this, say that. And 
you know, your hair's too big. Can you make it straight next time? And, you know, like I was told all kinds of things. And I, what I want people to really know is that freedom of voice comes, it, it's holistic. It's accepting the person as they are for who they are and meeting them where they are, right? And just passing them the microphone, giving them their own table. And, you know, we should be the ones invited to that table to listen to them. And so for me, that's what freedom of voice looks like. And that's what it means um, for me is that we really can't pick apart a person, right? Just to get what we want out of them or what we want them to say. When did you learn that you had a free voice? I learned seven years after I um, got out of the life of trafficking. It was a very... The writing of my actual, um, the written journal, that's when I learned. Um, When I first shared with that individual that I talked about earlier, um, that's when I learned. When I did my first presentation about sharing, you know, about trafficking and sharing my experience, that's when I learned. And I realized that the moment that I knew that I had voice and free voice was when I learned that human trafficking was a crime. I didn't know. I didn't know that it was a crime. I thought that it was something that I was doing. And so I was in living in silence and fear for so long because I didn't want to be labeled and, you know, ostracized from society because of all of the things that I had gone through and done. But when I learned that, wow, human trafficking is a crime and it happens to other people, oh, I've got to stop this. Right. And I think that's what gave me my voice. And then, you know, just being my authentic self. When I just started, stopped listening to people about how I should share and just said, okay, this is what I'm, this is what I have to offer. This is what I can share um, and educate communities. And, you know, people are receptive. That's, that's when I really. You know, you spoke about your authentic self and just, you know, I was thinking when people told you that, you know, straighten your hair or cut your hair or dress like this, do you think that, um, sex trafficking, prostitution are racialized. And those um, who are the poorest and black or Native American are the most likely to be trafficked. And the most, uh, the people who cannot even access criminal justice easily, they may not even know it's a crime. So what is the connection between racism and sex trafficking? What was the connection you saw with racism and uh, people who tried to help you, you know, between patronage and partnership. Yes, I do think and believe that there is a connection between race and sex trafficking because we can look at data, right? We simply just look at data if we point to it, um, you know, black girls, brown girls um, of color, girls of color are highly, highly, um, you know, overrepresented in the population of individuals that have experienced trafficking. That speaks. And then if we look more, we look further into the demand side and we look at who's buying these individuals. It's usually white, middle class, middle to upper class uh, men, right? Middle-aged men. And so if you take those two, just looking at the data, if you just take those two alone, you really can't argue that this is definitely racialized, right? And so in the anti-trafficking movement, in the counter-trafficking movement, we've got to own that. And we've got to say, okay, we understand that there is a population and there are populations. And like you spoke to, not just Black, but then, you know, Hispanic, highly represented in the anti-traffic. There's so many 
marginalized community that this thing targets. And we've got to be, we've got to be okay with those hard facts as a community in order to fix it. And so, very true. Yeah, very true. Can you uh, go back to your own life and see, uh, you know, share with my listeners uh, today that uh, the experience of being black, born black, how did that connect with your being trafficked? I was, you know, I came from a great home when I was younger. Um, I, but I came from a single parent family as well. So my mom, even though she did everything that she could, there was not a lot. She didn't have a lot of access to things because of lack of education. We moved from, we moved to the U.S. from Canada. Um, she's originally Jamaican, and so she was a foreigner. So lack of education, lack of access for a foreigner, right? Immigration, and so she, when we moved to the U.S she was limited in what jobs that she could get. And so she was a struggling single mother, right? No fault of her own. She tried everything that she could to, to, you know, access good jobs and good paying positions so that she could take care of my siblings and I. But the truth is we, she couldn't. And so that left a lot of things, right? That left her at work all the time. And I was at home all the time, right? Me and my siblings were at home all the time. That left the fact that she couldn't truly provide the way, you know, I wanted her to as a teenager, you know, we need things or we want things. And, and so I looked outward. Um, an another thing is because I came from a single parent household and my father was missing, I looked for the fatherly love. Right. And so there are a lot of things that, you know, just simply being black, right. And having the lack of access to opportunity that was already against me. The odds were already against me. Um, and so, you know, that, that was already stacked up. And then, you know, even in the life of trafficking, my trafficker, my then trafficker would say all of the time, you know, like, oh, you're the, you're the obedient black girl. Like you're, you know, you're the one that's obedient. And he would compare me to my white counterparts. So individuals that he were, tra that he was trafficking or individuals that, were already in the life. And he would say, well, yeah, you're never going to make as money as, as much money as hers. So we'll, you know, we'll get you here. Even that alone, right? Because it was racialized, even in the life, already in the darkness that was racialized. And then getting out, I was, you know, again, lack of opportunity to the things that I desired. There were so many, there were so many times that I was told no for housing or, you know, job positions and things like that. Because my name is Catherine, I, you know, I would ace the interview over the phone and then I show up and I immediately see the room change because they didn't realize, oh, wow, Catherine is usually, you know, a white name. It's Scottish. I have Scottish in my bloodline. And I show up with my dark skin and it's like, oh, yeah, I'm so sorry, you know, and I didn't get the job. So things like that. It's very true um, that this thing between trafficking, there's an intersection between trafficking and race. For the listeners of A Free Voice, uh, do you want to share a little bit about your own pathway? Like, uh, you know, you were stuck in the life. You got out, you wrote a journal, you shared it with other women, you 
told the story, staged a play. You created an organization, 1211 Partners, which is helping other women. You pushed for better laws and policies. And then you ended up in the White House, in the Oval Office, witnessing the very law being, the very bill being signed into law that you had advocated to get passed. How did that feel? And how did you even make that journey? Did you ever dream you would ever make that journey? No, never. And still till this day, when opportunities come, it's like very overwhelming because you don't, like I said, I started with just, I want to live the next moment, right? I just want to wake up tomorrow. So you start up with, I just want to wake up tomorrow to, oh, wow, trafficking is a crime. I want to give voice to other people. And you, you just do the work. And a lot of times we do the work with boots on the ground and we're looking directly at the, the people in front of us. And so we never have a chance to look up and, and realize, oh, I've come a long way. Like I've done a lot. So I think for me, collaboration was very important. And so partnerships, again, that word, um, very important. And that was how some doors of opportunity were, you know, had been opened for me because I had become very vocal about my stance and where I stand and the cause opportunities just kept piling up and piling up. And, you know, I would say yes to many and no to some. But the, you know, even being invited into the Oval Office was very surreal. You know, it was very surreal that my voice like did this, you know, and it was it was it gave me chills standing alongside other overcomers. And we were just like smiling, like what happened? Because, again, I just wanted to survive the next day. How did I get somebody pinched me. How did I get here? Right. Um, and I'm making changes. And and that's a moment to be proud of, not prideful, but very proud of in the fact that we're making moves. And it's true that if you put voice to something, you can change the trajectory for someone else. Beautiful. And uh, I think my listeners are dying to know what Destined is about. Do you want to tell them a little bit about the story? Because you read a bit and I'm sure they're intrigued. Yes. So as I said, Destined is my personal journey. It's very raw. It's very different. Um, you know, and it was from the perspective of my being in the life. And I'm not going to, you know, spoil it or anything, but there's a lot of spiritual aspects that speak to my mental state when I was there. And so if you read it, it's reading from my perspective, being in the life. I felt like I had a guardian angel. I felt like I had things that were watching over me. I felt like I, you know, it was, it was an outer body experience. And that is exactly how the book is written. It was for me, it was an outer body experience. I was looking at someone so desperately like in in desperate need of help and so vulnerable and I was just trying to reach down and help this girl and that girl happened to be me and so that's Destined the Unspoken Revealed is a very real raw picture of just a snippet honestly of what my life um, and my experience in trafficking was. And where can people get the book? It is on Amazon and Barnes Noble it's a digital copy you can get it anywhere. Destined. Destined, yep. By Kathy Gibbons. Yes. Do look out for it. Uh, but also in your own organization, you know, you've helped hundreds and hundreds of girls get out of the life and recover and move forward. Um, what is the biggest impact that you feel your organization has made? 
And what is your dream for this organization going forward? Yeah, so the biggest impact, again, um, we believe in going deep versus wide. And so the biggest impact is seeing individuals who have experienced trafficking thriving in freedom, literally owning who they are, you know, whether they're going into entrepreneurship or the arts or whatever, they're owning it, they're leading. You know, the main reason for 1211 is to develop leaders and to prove to people that survivors of trafficking and overcomers of trafficking, we're not broken individuals. We're not, we're not unrepairable. We're not like, you know, we, we don't wear the label of the victim for the rest of our life. We don't, we're actually people that can work, right? We're, we're people that can give back to society. We're people that can use our voice to uplift and change laws and be invited into the White House. We are people that can make change. And so I really truly believe that, you know, um, individuals that have experienced trafficking should be leading the anti-trafficking movement. But if they choose not to, that's fine too. We're leaders in our communities. And so for 1211, the dream would be to have hundreds and hundreds of graduates from our mentorship program leading in their communities, leading in their families, changing laws, writing policies, and just being absolutely all around great. What does freedom mean to you? Freedom is this. Freedom is being able to engage in conversations and show up as my authentic self and being transparent without being judged. Freedom is the voice that I know that I own now, right? And and the freedom to say and be who I want and to do it alongside other individuals that are rising up together. In the website of 1211 Partners, I saw on your mission page that you had the photograph of a girl with boxing gloves facing the viewer. What was the thought behind that photograph? What I'm doing now in my life um, with helping others and giving voice to the issue of trafficking, highlighting it and, and spreading awareness and outreach, I call that my fight back, right? So when individuals say, well, hey, you know, was your trafficker ever prosecuted? And, you know, we get asked that a lot. And I say no, because by the time I realized that I was free, he was gone. And what did it, you know, I thought it was in a bad relationship. So what do you do when you get exit a bad relationship? You rip up all the pictures, you burn all the stuff, you throw it away, which is evidence. And so I didn't have a chance to fight back then, but I'm fighting back now. And so I tell other individuals, this is our fight back. And so the boxing gloves kind of signifies that. That is Kathy Gibbons on a free voice who will continue to be a voice for those left behind. Tune in, listen to her, buy her book Destined, and you will hear more episodes with people who have used their voice to make a difference in the lives of other young people on a free voice. I'm Ruchira Gupta, your host. Thank you, Kathy. The wind curled and wound and wove around them like ribbons. Then the wind stalled as they all paused before this thing, writ in books and on stones and bit into birch bark, this thing dreamed of and schemed over by generations. Their ancestors knew it was coming, would happen, no matter what, it was dreamed, writ, told. This point in time and place when a decision would have to be made, 
and that decision would determine whether creation would be destroyed or whether creation would flower again. All Chris and Cher's people could do for generations was hold steady to the earth in the winds of change, of death, of destruction, of the imbalance the English brought with them, the imbalance that would spread and join with this side of the great water, the Windigo, who held to destruction too. Together, the destroyers from all sides would join. Together, they would tip the balance so far over that this would happen again and again and again, near brooks, on water, on ships, beneath the earth in the tunnels they dug to disembowel rock and sand and minerals. Girls and women, mostly, especially, targeted for their sacredness, for their power, for their generation of life, but boys and babies as well. The trees moved imperceptibly towards the moon's light, pulled by the reflection of the sun. Then the wind whipped around them one final time, and it was gone. And so it began. For a reason unknown to the two men, they paused, looked at the girls, as if for a moment they had the choice to realize that Indian girls existed on their own, beyond what the white men wanted. They did not understand it, why they'd turned to the girls the way they had. They would not reflect on it. That moment when their spirits stepped forward, became naked, had a choice, and a chance to change what they were about to do. The men would not wonder why they'd suddenly both turned to the girls, young, Indian, female, one a looker, the other like a boy, their captives. As strange as their momentary change in perception was, the men would not think of it again. They did not have to consider it. The men made their choice. You just heard Chris Stark, author of Carnival Lights, read from her book about a young girl from an indigenous tribe who was trafficked. And this happened during British colonialism. Chris talks about then and now in her book and how there's a line which continues to the present day of what is happening to indigenous girls and women. Women and girls, I call the last girl. Chris is an author, a visual artist, a survival leader and an activist. And we are very lucky to have her with us in this podcast, A Free Voice. Chris, my first question to you is that uh, what made you choose uh, books as a medium to broadcast your message rather than art? I know you've been doing visual art for a long time. Yeah, I, I think that... Um... I always wanted to be a writer since I was very young. I knew that I wanted to be a writer. And this is just uh, a final realization of the dream that I held for a very long time throughout my life. Books reach people in ways that art does not. And, you know, I would consider myself more of a writer than a visual artist. What do you think this book has done? It's been out for about uh, six to eight months already now, and it's doing the rounds. I've read it. What do you think this book has achieved so far? My my hope and my uh, prayer as a, a, a woman with Ojibwe, Cherokee, and European ancestry is that this book would go out into the world and it would help uh, bring about healing and justice. And healing and justice for anyone who's reading it, you don't have to be from a certain demographic to read this book or to find healing and hope for our country, for our world, for the land, the water, uh, people. I can 
attest to that. But before I talk about uh, similarities in our inequalities uh, imposed on us through British colonialism, I want you to tell the story of your book, the story inside your book uh, to our listeners. Yeah, technically it's considered historical fiction because I did weave actual historical events and people into the story of the fictitious Ojibwe family. So it it starts, it goes back into the 1800s and goes up to mostly up to 1969, although it dips a little bit uh, into the 2000s as well. And it follows uh, an Ojibwe family called the Bronze, and they were given that name by uh, a, a white person who was doing the, the roles and made up that name uh, for their family because, of course, that would not be their name in Ojibwe Moen, the Ojibwe language. And it particularly follows uh, two girls, Chris and Cher, who are cousins, and they leave their fictitious reservation in northern Minnesota uh, for Minneapolis because of a series of losses in their family and on the reservation. And so it follows their journey, a coming-of-age story, of course, as they go down into Minneapolis and then kind of wind their way around the Twin Cities in August of 1969. So their forward story is set in a very small window of time, but it shows the kinds of things that happen and that are done, uh, particularly to Indigenous uh, young people, particularly Indigenous girls, uh, when they end up you know, uh, seeking a new life or something different, and they end up in urban areas and become very targeted and preyed upon. So uh, they end up at the Minnesota State Fair the last quarter of the book. And of course, the book is called Carnival Lights. And so, you know, one of the uh, main analogies in the book is just comparing the U.S. culture to a carnival, a dangerous carnival, often. (laughs) You call your book historical fiction, but you say that eventually you took it up to 1969 and you called it Carnival Lights because you also wanted to show a mirror to current America to show that what kind of a fake carnival it is. Could you talk a little bit more about that? about today and the status of indigenous girls now and why everything feels like this fake carnival. Yeah. Yeah. So if you look at, uh, you know, history, you go back to Columbus, who of course, you know, was the the first colonizer to land on Turtle Island. One of the first things that he and his men did was to uh, rape and brutalize not only um, indigenous uh, women, but also the girls. And in his journal, you can find him talking about how his men were going out and searching for nine and 10 year old girls to use in what we now call sex trafficking. And so he was engaged in that that sexual brutalization, sex trafficking, sex slavery, along with uh, chattel slavery, where he sent uh, indigenous people over to the Mediterranean and sold them in the Mediterranean slave trade. So you can look at that very beginning Uh, point of colonization for this land uh, and indigenous people on this land. And you can follow it right up uh, to today where, you know, a mile and a half from my house, uh, two young uh, native teenage women, uh, a few years apart from each other were murdered and their bodies were left in an, in a um, upscale white neighborhood. And there was virtually absolutely no outcry or no interest in that. And if you go about a mile north of my house, there was another Native woman who was uh, 
murdered and uh, her body was in a strange curled position and she was left under trash in a vacant uh, backyard. And so we see this kind of predatory nature and the kinds of vulnerabilities that a lot of Native people experience in this contemporary culture. We can trace that right back to Christopher Columbus. Of course, there's over 500 indigenous nations uh, on, on this land, many, uh, you know, some of which are entirely gone now to genocide, genocidal tactics. Um, but for many of those uh, nations, uh, prostitution or trafficking or sexual violence of any kind committed towards women and children was absolutely not a part of the culture. It was not um, tolerated. It was not allowed. And if there was a man who did stray and uh, commit some sort of violence against women and children, uh, he received serious punishment, including sometimes being killed. So, you know, we, we have that uh, vast cultural difference in the ways that women and children were treated under indigenous cultures here for many thousands of years. And then when Europeans arrived, they imported that kind of, shall I say, sexual savagery and uh, indigenous women and girls in particular were often targeted, especially in the beginning, uh, because there were no other women or, or children or girls on this land then. Um, and so, you know, it's not really like history is repeating itself. It's just sort of like it hasn't stopped. Uh, also for indigenous people, we see the connection between the abuses of the land and the water and then uh, sex trafficking and other forms of sexual violence, then particularly being committed against indigenous uh, women and girls and boys as well. So for instance, here in northern Minnesota or in North Dakota, when we have the pipelines coming through, we have all of these man camps that come along with them. And they're, they're men who belong to other communities and they come here and they have an extensive amount of free time and an extensive amount of money. And, and uh, you know, they target, again, indigenous uh, women and youth uh, for sex trafficking and other kinds of um, sexual degra degradation. So, you know, this isn't to say that there's no trafficking happening within the Native community. We, you know, there are those issues of the intergenerational trafficking. But like, as you were talking about with your example, that has to be understood in the context of the ongoing colonization of Indigenous people on this land. And, uh, you know, the other thing, uh, when I was reading your book, Carnival Lights, and, uh, you know, you sort of pointed at this kind of fake carnival which is going on and consuming little girls, I was thinking that the intersectionality of oppression or inequality is so common between India and United States. In India, I call the girl who is trafficked, sex trafficked or put into prostitution as the last girl because uh, to me she's the weakest human being I know. She's the last and uh, she's the last because she's born poor, she's born female, she's born a teenager and very often she's born of an indigenous nomadic group, a criminal tribe or from an oppressed caste. So it's intersecting inequality, which traffickers know to prey on because they know they can recruit girls from there. And therefore, the brothels of Bombay and Calcutta are full of girls from such tribes. And 
this is something I want to share with you, Chris, that even the licensed brothels, the factory-like brothels which exist in India, which are the largest red light districts now they are called in the world, in Calcutta and Bombay, they were established by the British. Because at one point, uh, syphilis broke out in the British army among soldiers and clerks. And, uh, you know, they couldn't... Um, really have their soldiers and officers dying because how would they rule India then? So what the British did was two things at the same time. They passed two laws. One was called the Contagious Diseases Act under which uh, they actually established licensed brothels inside certain districts and they gave the brothels licenses based on the fact that th those brothels would have all the girls in the brothels checked for diseases every week periodically in the municipal hospital if they were disease free license renewed and for the ease and convenience of british soldiers and clerks each of the brothels had to hang their license number above the door with a red light shining on it so welcome house 67 welcome house 22 and this is how the name red light district really came up and, you know, they created a whole factory-like system to provide disease-free women to British soldiers and clerks. And funnily enough, Chris, you know, as you said, there's a continued legacy. So now, you know, in India, when uh, an AIDS intervention program was created, then again, the intervention was to protect male buyers from disease, male sex buyers from disease, rather than protecting the women and girls. So, uh, you know, the entire program was about condom distribution in the brothels and journal articles were written that even if you see a girl being exploited, ignore it because you need to make friends with the brothel manager to get inside the condom to give out the to get inside to give out the condom. So, you know, there are such parallels both historically and geographically to what you are saying. Yeah, I I think it's it's stunning how people still think of these issues of prostitution and sex trafficking. And their first thought is it's the woman's choice or it's the girl's choice, or she did something or she's just that way. Instead of looking at like what you're talking about, the um, historical context, the contemporary context, the social context, the political context, the military providing young girls to the military in order to be sexually abused. And it, it's amazing to me how divorced that is and what a powerful myth that continues to be in the ways that people understand and think about this issue. Uh, you look at uh, northern Minnesota and we have a lot of the similar, not exactly the same, but similar red light districts, a history of red light districts up in Duluth, Minnesota, for instance, or Superior, Wisconsin, which is very close to Duluth. And they're right on uh, Lake Superior. And so you have a tremendous amount of commerce coming into those ports and then also leaving those ports, you know, for instance, you know, grain being transported to Duluth and then shipped out or lumber and so on. And of course, the, the mining from northern Minnesota, which has provided the United States with 75 percent of the steel that this country uses. And you have these vast, powerful social institutions, and you have these connections between um, politics, between the state, the country, the federal government, and commerce. And then down there at the bottom, you know, you have uh, the the people who are being ground up in those systems, 
in order to provide, uh, you know, um, someone to be raped, let's put it that way, uh, by all of the, the men who are a part of those institutions. And all of the onus, all of the blame, all of the shame goes down to that homeless 14-year-old girl who left her reservation because there's no food on the reservation for her and her family, for instance. And, and it's just astonishing the way that people refuse to understand that um, entire countries uh, revolve around the institutionalization of uh, providing men with human beings to be used and used up sexually. I, I did a, a series of interviews as a graduate student with Native women in Duluth who had been trafficked on those ships. And you look at those ships and you look at the amount of money and you look at the power of the state of Minnesota, the power of the city of Duluth, the power of colonization, the power of racism and sexism and homophobia uh, and so on. And then, you know, the result of that for the women who had been trafficked on those ships was that they're living in a transitional center, you know, or they're living in a homeless shelter or maybe they're homeless and they're in tremendous pain and depression and sadness and and they're in their 50s and you know they'll say i've been raped my whole life what else do you want to know yet this myth just continues and the total lack of accountability for these institutions and what they have done to indigenous people and what they have done to indigenous women and youth uh, through their their sexual um, uses, through the sex trafficking, the prostitution, uh, murder. Uh, Native women are murdered at a higher rate than any other group of women. Uh, Native women have a higher rate of violence committed against us than any other group in this country, in the United States. You know, and and these this kind of information is is uh, it's a race nobody wants to win, but it really needs to be brought forward. And it really has to be understood in this context of the ongoing colonization of indigenous people with uh, rape and with sex trafficking and prostitution being a core component of colonization then and now. So where do we go from here? This is America. And uh, this is the present time uh, that, uh, you know, the ongoing colonization of indigenous people what suggestions do you have? What do you recommend? The native uh, native communities are really under under resourced, and tribes are also often left out of the equation. And the need to bring in tribes, tribal communities, and indigenous people, so that uh, we have the resources to create services for native uh, women and youth who want to get out of these situations and who have, frankly, the courage and the ability to step forward and try to make those changes because that's very difficult to do. Uh, that would be the number one thing would be to provide resources so that Native people can create services run by and for Native people. Uh, native you know, women um, don't necessarily want to go into non-native spaces to try to find healing. 
our ways, um, you know, are are different than than other communities, at least in some ways. And it's important to have that cultural healing uh, in, in within the within the services that are being provided. What has been your own life experience? I'm sure listeners would like to know a little bit more about you. How did you go so deep into these subjects? How did you end up in college doing a survey with indigenous women and finding out what was going on in their lives? What brought you to all this? Who are you? Yeah, yeah. I I am uh, indigenous and white, and I grew up, you know, thinking that because I didn't grow up on a reservation and because I look white, my skin is is white, that I had no right to uh, be native or to be a part of the communities. And my grandmothers were very silenced around their ancestry. And that that is not inseparable from the kinds of abuses uh, that they experienced in their childhood and adulthood years. And I went back in my early 30s uh, up to White Earth Reservation and I got my Indian name and I got, you know, other, um, I went through ceremonies and that really began my, my profound healing. I credit the wonderful life that I have now, which doesn't mean that it's not difficult because it is, you're never free of the things that were done to you. You're just freer of them, uh, to the native community, to ceremonies and to the healings and teachings that I've received from native elders, from Anishinaabe elders. And so part of what I'm doing is really wanting to give back uh, to that through my writing and through my work and raise awareness around these issues. And part of that is that those of us who have been abused in these ways, and there's many, many of us, you know, we're not sitting in, in the corner sucking our thumb. You know, we're not just pathetic people that need to be quote unquote saved. Uh, we have our strengths, we have our intelligences, we have our gifts, our indigenous communities, same for them, intelligence, gifts, beautiful ways, profound languages, and so on. And so it's really important to for people who are not a part of these communities to understand that uh, we need to work together, we don't need to be saved. And, and so, as I said, I've been an, an a grassroots activist, or perhaps I didn't say this, I've been a grassroots activist since I was um, like 21 years old. And I kind of cut my teeth with uh, Andrea Dworkin and Catherine McKinnon, uh, who became friends of mine. And um, I put in unpaid countless years uh, or countless hours uh, of work as an activist. And I put myself on the line. I've, I've, you know, put myself in dangerous situations to stand up for the truth of what women and girls are going through and what native women and girls in particular are going through. And I finally, you know, finished a couple of books. I have a couple of books behind me and that's where I feel like I have really realized my full gifts of what I, I feel like I bring to the world. And so I have a, a tremendous amount of um, peace because I've finished these books and gotten them out into the world. When did you actually feel free? Is there any moment you can um, remember or talk about when you felt you had a free voice? 
I experienced uh, family trafficking growing up from the time that I was very, very young. And from their perspective or, or some of my family's perspective, I was born to be raped and sold for rape and used in pornography. And so that was one aspect of my reality growing up. It was a pervasive aspect. But within that, I experienced beauty and freedom and hope um, largely through nature and through animals. And I had my two grandmothers who were very kind and not abusive. And so I had them as well. So I, I have always been able, fortunately, to find that within the world around me and within myself. I didn't experience so much of that with human beings, but the natural world, the lakes that I grew up in in northern Minnesota, and the trees, and just the beauty of the natural world, I think that's what saved me from being annihilated by the things that they did to me. What does freedom mean to you? I think there's a freedom of spirit that I was describing. And it's very important for people to find that within themselves and outside of themselves, wherever they might find that. Because that's your core strength. And that is freedom. That is something that I try to find as much as possible every day in my life. But certainly, I can't say that in the world that we live in and the society that we live under, that I would feel free in, in that context. I would not feel free. But the more that I experience joy and happiness, freedom, and love, and live my life to the best of my ability every day, out of love and respect and humility, the more I free myself from the lies that they told to me and the lies they told to other people about me. That's beautiful. Thank you so much. Um, I just want to thank you for this really meaningful dialogue, conversation. And I hope that we can continue talking about all the issues that you raise in the coming months. And uh, this is Chris Tuck on A Free Voice. I'm Ruchira Gupta, and thank you for listening to A Free Voice. Subscribe to our podcast to get notifications of new episodes or check us out at ruchiragupta.com. The podcast is produced by Ram Devineni with Ratapalix and Bauri Poetry. Special thanks to Leela Kapoor and Anika Kothari. This podcast series is funded by the Citizen Diplomacy Action Fund, which is sponsored by the U.S. Department of State and implemented by Global Ties U.S. in partnership with the Office of Alumni Affairs and the Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs. Additional support from New York State Council on the Arts, Governor of New York State and the New York State Legislature.